This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, planning committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Postpartum Pelvic Floor Dysfunction. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, filling in for our moderator, Dr. Jim Allen. If I was to ask you to name an exercise to strengthen the pelvic floor muscles after having a baby, most of you would say Kegel exercises. If I was to then ask you who invented Kegel exercises, you might say American gynecologist Arnold Henry Kegel, who published an article about exercises to strengthen the pelvic floor in the Annals of Western Medicine and Surgery in 1948. But that wouldn't be exactly right. Instead, we have to go back 12 years earlier, when a book was published by a professional dancer named Margaret Morris. She was born in 1891 and began her career as a child actress and ballet dancer. By age 19, she was an internationally known choreographer and theater producer. In her 30s, she opened a dance school and became interested in how movement and posture affected health. So in 1925, she went to London's St. Thomas Hospital to study physiotherapy. She further developed her ideas about exercises and health that culminated in her 1936 book titled Maternity and Postoperative Exercises. In her book, she outlined 21 exercises for women to perform that could improve urinary incontinence and other consequences of childbirth. Her book was reviewed in JAMA in 1937, where the reviewer stated that he was satisfied with the soundness of Miss Morris's scheme and believe that their application will yield most beneficial results. 
Uh, the treatment of pelvic floor disorders has come a long way in the 87 years since Margaret Morris published her book. And today on MedNet, we're going to learn about the state of the art in managing postpartum pelvic floor dysfunction. I'm pleased to introduce our guest, Dr. Lisa Hickman, is an associate professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the High State University and specializes in pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery. Lisa, welcome. Thanks, Jim. Well, you know, Lisa, pelvic floor disorders just don't get a whole lot of press. How frequent are they? So up to one in two women will experience a symptomatic pelvic floor disorder in their lifetime. So it is extremely common. Well, what are some of the common symptoms that should raise the possibility of a pelvic floor disorder? So the most common symptoms that women will experience are difficulty with bladder control, difficulty with bowel control, and pelvic organ prolapse, which is a hernia, basically, of the pelvic organs into the vagina. Well, thanks, Lisa. For all of you viewing, you can view all 120 of our current MedNet webcasts by going to ccme.osu.edu on your web browser. And if you prefer to get your continuing medical education by podcast, just go to your podcast app and search OSU MedNet 21. Also, if you have questions about pelvic floor dysfunction, you can email us by using the Ask a Question icon at the bottom of the MedNet webpage. And now let's get started with today's webcast. Lisa? Thanks, Jim. I am so happy to be here today to talk to you about postpartum pelvic floor dysfunction, which is a topic near and dear to my heart. The objectives of my talk today are to understand how obstetric delivery impacts pelvic floor function, to appreciate the common pelvic floor disorders experienced by postpartum patients, to discuss the natural history of postpartum pelvic floor disorders, and to understand the available treatment options for these conditions. I want you to consider this first. Labor has been called and is still believed by many to be a normal function, and yet it is a decidedly pathologic process. Everything, of course, depends on what we define as normal. If a woman falls on a pitchfork and drives the handle through her perineum, we call that pathologic abnormal. But if a large baby is driven through the pelvic floor, we say that is natural and therefore normal. This is a quote by Dr. DeLee, who is an obstetrician gynecologist, and this quote was made in 1920. The irony of this quote is that that's the same year that Dr. DeLee advocated for the prophylactic forceps vaginal delivery. And the irony with this is that we know now that operative vaginal deliveries actually increase the risk of pelvic floor disorders instead of being protective, which was his objective. So let's start by talking about what is the pelvic floor? The pelvic floor is a group of muscles and connective tissue that attaches to the bony pelvis. It provides support to the pelvic organs. Defects in this support contribute to a variety of pelvic floor disorders, such as bladder control issues, bowel control issues, and pelvic organ prolapse. And these are the ones that I'm going to focus on during this presentation today. However, there are many other pelvic floor disorders that I won't be able to cover today. So again, in this talk, you're gonna hear me mention the levator ani muscles quite a bit which is um, three muscles that are kind of largely known to supply pelvic organ support. And these are the pubococcygeus, the iliococcygeus muscle, and the puborectalis, which acts as a sling around the anorectum and is not pictured in this image. So how common are PFDs? 
An NHANE study looked at community-dwelling women and actually both surveyed and examined them. And in this study, up to 50% of women by age 80 had at least one pelvic floor disorder. Another study demonstrated that up to 20% nearly of women will have a lifetime risk of undergoing surgery for prolapse or incontinence. However, this may actually underestimate the prevalence as many women will not elect to undergo surgery. The Women's Health Initiative study um, found that 41% of women with a uterus and 38% of women who had had a previous hysterectomy had prolapse on exam. So why do women get pelvic floor disorders? Well, there's a variety of risk factors. Childbirth is a big contributor, especially vaginal deliveries. Obesity is a risk factor because that increased weight puts pressure on the pelvic organs and pelvic floor. Aging, we know that we lose muscle mass as we age, and so this contributes to support problems. Menopause with the changing hormonal milieu, family history of pelvic floor disorders, connective tissue disorders where there's laxity in collagen can um, affect the supports of the organs, and then anything that puts chronic stress on the pelvic floor, such as coughing, chronic straining with constipation, et cetera. So today, we're gonna to put our focus on childbirth and especially vaginal deliveries. So what's the impact of pregnancy on the pelvic floor? Well, not surprisingly, the pelvic floor is placed under increased stress. And this is from changes in the hormonal milieu. We have increasing progesterone, which is a smooth muscle relaxant. You have the weight of the gravid uterus, as well as weight gain in pregnancy. And this contributes to changes in intra-abdominal pressure which all puts you know, increased stress on the pelvic floor. For many patients, this translates to pelvic and vaginal pressure, a sense of heaviness, urinary frequency, urgency, and urinary incontinence, nocturia, um, which is nighttime peeing. And for the first time, this is you know, when patients are experiencing pelvic floor dysfunctions or have even heard of it. Before this, many women don't even know they have a pelvic floor, let alone what can go wrong with it. And then delivery happens. So during delivery, the medial muscles of the levator ani are at greatest risk for injury. The pubococcygeus muscle in a research study of biomechanical loading from the University of Michigan demonstrated that it reached a stretch ratio of over three times, which was an increase in 216% of its length. And we know that increasing the fetal head diameter by 9% increases the stretch proportionally. An imaging study using MRI and ultrasound of primiparous women by the same group after vaginal, del vaginal delivery, excuse me, found that 20 to 36% had abnormalities in the levator ani muscles compared to nulliparous, so women who've never had a vaginal delivery, um, such as avulsion of the pelvic floor muscles from the pubic ramus. And we know that these defects put patients at risk for pelvic floor disorders. There's also nerve compression and stretching. Branches of the pudendal nerve, which supply the clitoris, vulva, distal vagina, and anorectum are stretched over 30% during a vaginal delivery. And this ex exceeds thresholds known to cause permanent damage in animals, which is closer to 15 to 
And this damage, either directly or from stretching, can contribute to fecal continence issues postpartum and loss of vulvar sensation. And then there's direct muscle injury. So we know up to 80% of women will have a laceration from a vaginal delivery. Most are a first degree tear, which is a tear into the lining of the vaginal epithelium, or a second degree tear, which extends into the perineal body and involves the pelvic floor muscles. Less than 5% of women will experience more severe tears into the anal sphincter complex or through into the rectum, which are third and fourth degree tears respectively. And throughout this talk, you will see the term OASI, which is obstetric anal sphincter injury. For primiparous women who've had one vaginal delivery at one year postpartum, over 40% reported stress urinary incontinence, 32% reported nocturia, 23% reported incontinence of flatus, and 9% had at least stage two prolapse on exam, which means that the leading edge of prolapse extends at least to or near the hymen. So how about, how do we care for postpartum mothers? There has been a growing interest in the fourth trimester, which is the 12 weeks after delivery. And this has been a call to action from the American College of OBGYN, um, calling for enhanced and shorter interval follow-up. Traditionally, patients would be seen at six weeks postpartum, but now there's a pushing um, effort to have women seen within two weeks of delivery. And we know that the fourth trimester is a critical time for healing, um, and the body goes through dynamic change that may be even more than what they experience during pregnancy. There are subspecialty urogynecology-run peripartum pelvic floor disorder clinics that have been growing in number across the U.S., especially in the last decade. And these clinics play an essential role for the recovery of women with complex or advanced lacerations, wound healing problems, and for women who are experiencing postpartum pelvic floor disorders. And I actually run one of these clinics at Ohio State. But what can you do? So first of all, it's asking the right questions. Many patients will not volunteer bowel or bladder issues without direct inquiry from their provider. And this is because these are embarrassing symptoms. Um, patients will often suffer in silence because they are too afraid to speak up about it. And there's also an increased emphasis on breastfeeding and caring for the baby. And all of these things are really important postpartum, but so are these pelvic floor conditions. So I ask you to remember the three Bs. Asking patients, how are, how's your bladder? How are your bowels? Are you experiencing any bulb sensation? And if they say yes, there are initial treatments that you can recommend. But first, let's talk about some definitions. Urinary incontinence is the involuntary leakage of urine. Stress urinary incontinence, or SUI, is leakage with increases in intra-abdominal pressure, such as cough, laugh, sneeze, any kind of physical activity, pushing, pulling, bending, jumping on a trampoline. Urgency incontinence is leakage with urgency to void. This is the classic, gotta go, I get the urge, I can't make it to the bathroom in time. Mixed incontinence is a term that encompasses both stress and urgency incontinence. And while there are other types of urgency, uh, excuse me, of urinary incontinence that women can experience, these are the primary ones that um, are most common and that I'll focus on during our discussion today. 
Overactive bladder is a syndrome of frequency, which is defined as greater than seven voids per day, and sensory urgency, with or without incontinence. And when patients experience three or more episodes of incontinence a day, it's considered severe. Nocturia is nighttime awakening to void immediately preceded by sleep. As far as bowel control definitions go, fecal incontinence is the involuntary loss of liquid or solid stool that is a social or hygienic problem. Anal incontinence encompasses involuntary loss of flatus, liquid, or solid stool that again is a social or hygienic problem. And fecal urgency is the inability to defer an urge to defecate. As far as pelvic organ prolapse goes, it's a herniation of the pelvic organs to or beyond the vaginal walls. And I tell my patients, it's like a weakness of the support structures that used to hold your organs in place. There are three compartments that I'll talk about. The cystocele is an anterior vaginal wall prolapse, and traditionally this is the bladder that is um, bulging down and out. A rectocele is a bulge of the posterior vaginal wall where the rectum sits beneath. And then there's uterovaginal prolapse, which is a descent of the uterus and cervix in the vaginal canal. Now women can also have vaginal vault prolapse, which happens after a hysterectomy. But for the purposes of our talk today, I would assume that most of our patients will have a uterus since they're of reproductive age and just had a baby. So we'll focus on that. So now I wanna share some lessons learned from my patients. First, I'm gonna discuss bladder control issues. The first patient is a 30-year-old woman who just had her second vaginal delivery. She presented on postpartum day 17 after a spontaneous vaginal delivery and experienced a second-degree laceration during that delivery. She complains of stress and urgency urinary incontinence which we would call mixed since she has both, but she also tells you that she experienced stress urinary incontinence in pregnancy. I examine her, she's healing well, but when I ask her to do a Kegel squeeze, she has no ability to coordinate her muscles. And this is not uncommon because it is, as I mentioned, a major stress on the pelvic floor delivering a baby vaginally. And even women who could do a great levator squeeze before delivery sometimes cannot coordinate their muscles transiently postpartum. And so as an initial step, we talked about it and she wanted to give pelvic floor physical therapy, which you'll see defined as PFPT um, throughout the, the presentation today. She wanted to give that a try. She came back to see me nine weeks later and she was continuing to report bothersome stress incontinence that she said was significantly affecting her quality of life. She completed four pelvic floor PT sessions, and now her levator squeeze had improved. It was about a two out of five. I fit her with an anti-incontinence pessary, but after we did the fitting, she said, you know, I just don't think I can use this. I recommended continuing with pelvic floor PT, and I discussed the option of over-the-counter vaginal incontinence inserts that you can get at any drugstore in the pad aisle. And then I discussed some surgical management options if she didn't have improvement and it was a continuing to be a burden on her quality of life. So let's talk about postpartum urinary incontinence. The incidence of postpartum urinary incontinence ranges from three to 40%. A systematic review revealed that the mean prevalence of any urinary incontinence was 33% 
at three months postpartum. Weekly and daily urinary incontinence was 12 and 3% respectively. And the mean prevalence was greater in vaginal versus cesarean section groups at 31% versus 15%. And in this study, they found that only small changes in urinary incontinence occurred over the first year postpartum. The cohort study that I mentioned earlier in the study, um, which is from the University of Utah, found that 41% of primiparous women, which are women who have just experienced their first vaginal delivery, experience stress urinary incontinence at one year postpartum. And only 23% experience resolution of their incontinence between eight weeks and one year. We know that childbearing is an established risk factor for urinary incontinence. Parity is associated with increased risk of stress incontinence and urge incontinence, but a vaginal birth further increases the risk of stress incontinence. Increasing age, BMI and family history of urinary incontinence are risk factors for urinary incontinence in pregnancy. And we know that a vaginal birth and urinary incontinence in pregnancy are risk factors for it persisting as postpartum urinary incontinence. A longitudinal st cohort study that contacted patients starting at three months out to 12 years postpartum found persistent urinary incontinence, which was stress urinary incontinence greater than those who experienced mixed, which was greater than those who experienced just urgency alone, was present in 24% of women at six years and 38% of women at 12 years postpartum. And almost um, three quarters of women who experienced urinary incontinence at three months continued to report it at six and 12 years respectively. So this tells us that we know women who experience it early in postpartum, a small percentage of those women will have resolution, but for many women, the urinary incontinence is here to stay by three months or especially by six months. We know that pelvic floor physical therapy is an effective treatment for women experiencing stress incontinence, urgency incontinence, and mixed incontinence. A Cochrane review estimated women with postpartum urinary incontinence who underwent pelvic floor physical therapy were 40% less likely to report urinary incontinence at 12 months than those receiving no treatment. A randomized control trial of pelvic floor PT versus education for urinary incontinence showed decreased urinary incontinence and urinary incontinence bother at six months postpartum. Patients also had increased muscle strength and duration of muscle strength contraction. And another randomized control trial of pelvic floor PT versus education actually found no difference in urinary incontinence at six months after delivery in primiparous women. But my takeaway from this is that if it's feasible for patients to do pelvic floor physical therapy, meaning that they can get to the appointments, that the copay is not cost prohibitive, then I think physical therapy is a really important place to start um, for women who are experiencing urinary incontinence. What are some other options for stress incontinence? Well, you can talk to your patients about diet and lifestyle modifications. This includes fluid management. You know, it is amazing how much fluid women will drink, especially when they're breastfeeding postpartum. So talking to them about drinking enough to maintain their milk supply, but not drinking to excess. Um, trying to avoid before you do activities that would cause stress incontinence. Contracting your pelvic floor muscles. Pelvic floor physical therapists call that the knack, when you squeeze your pelvic floor muscles when you feel a sneeze coming on, for example. 
Um, in the upper right corner, you'll see a silicone device. That's an incontinence pessary, um, which is a device that sits in the vagina. And you'll see that there's a little knob, and that is the part that sits underneath the midurethra. And the idea is that since stress incontinence is really just a disconnect in pressure, meaning that forces come down on the bladder, the urethra, when you are continent, can withstand those forces. But when patients have stress incontinence, oftentimes they have some weakness of the supports underneath the urethra, and they have urethral hypermobility. The um, knob provides support underneath the mid-urethra to help increase the resistance in the urethra and help maintain urine in the bladder when stress events occur. These are fit at an office visit, so there's lots of different shapes and sizes. Those are only a couple available to patients. There's also over-the-counter disposable vaginal inserts, which you can see underneath the pessaries, and they have an applicator that looks a little bit more like a tampon. The pro is that it's familiar and patients can use them as much or as little as they want. The con is that they tend to be a little bit expensive and for patients who experience leakage every day, they would need to use multiple a day, um, whereas the silicone pessaries are uh, reusable. There's a procedure called urethral bulking, which is a great procedure with about 70% effectiveness for being significantly improved or dry for stress incontinence. And basically what it is, is we inject a hydrogel material using a cystoscope at the level of the bladder neck um, to create increased resistance at the bladder neck to make it harder for women to leak. And this is a procedure traditionally performed in the office that has no downtime. The mid-urethral sling is a lightweight piece of mesh that sits underneath the mid-urethra to act as a backstop with the pressure disconnect for when women cough, laugh, or sneeze. And this is a 30-minute outpatient procedure that's done in the operating room. And then there's also a retropubic suspension, also called the birch, that is a procedure that has been around for many, many years. And this could be an option for a patient who continues to be interested in childbearing. But in my practice, because we know that even a small percentage of women will have improvement in their incontinence, I would wait at least six months postpartum before I would perform one of these procedures that I um, denoted with an asterisk. What about a mid-urethral sling in subsequent pregnancies? Well, there was a study um, that was performed out of Kaiser that was a retrospective case series. And while small, it does provide some helpful information. In this study, they had 26 patients who had a history of a sling. 14 of these 25 deliveries were done by C-section, and five were actually performed electively because of the history of the sling. 11 women had vaginal deliveries, and there were no sling-related pregnancy complications. Only one patient in this case series ended up with recurrent stress urinary incontinence postpartum, and she actually ended up getting a repeat sling with resolution of her symptoms. A Swedish population-based cohort study examined 207 women with a history of a midurethral sling, and they matched to 521 controls. And they looked at the stress urinary incontinence rate after delivery and found that it was not significantly different between the two groups. 22% in the midurethral sling group experienced incontinence versus 17% in the control group. And they concluded that vaginal birth had no impact on risk of stress urinary incontinence compared to C-section. How about urgency incontinence? What are the treatment options there? Well, I always talk to my patients about diet and lifestyle modifications. 
These are things like avoiding bladder irritants, which is coffee, tea, soda, alcohol, carbonated beverages. There are some foods that can also irritate the lining of the bladder and contribute to urgency. Lifestyle modifications include things like elevating your legs in the evening if you get some dependent edema, um, cutting back fluids a couple hours before bedtime, drinking to your thirst, um, things like that. And they, believe it or not, can make a difference in urinary incontinence symptoms by just making simple changes. Pelvic floor physical therapy is certainly an option in this patient population and can be significantly effective for improving symptoms. And then also timed voiding and bladder training. So bladder training, um, sometimes patients get into a bad habit where they're voiding multiple times an hour because of an urge to void. But they can do urge suppression techniques such as um, five Kegel squeezes in a row, we call those quick flicks, distraction, belly breathing, to try and break that urge cycle with their brain and um, not rush to the bathroom. And then increasing the interval at which you actually go to the bathroom. So if you can only void, if you're voiding every 30 minutes, then wait 45, even if you really need to go. And studies have shown that that can significantly improve urinary frequency um, when you really dedicate to a schedule and incrementally increase that interval. How about medications? So the American Urologic Association recommends medications as second-line treatments for urgency, incontinence, and overactive bladder. And there are two main classes, the anticholinergics, which many of you may be familiar with because they've been on the market for a very long time, and then the beta-3 agonists, which are kind of the newer medications on the market. And so what do we say about using them in the postpartum population? Well, anticholinergics may pass into the breast milk and can cause excitement or irritability in the baby. And long-term use might reduce milk production or letdown, and so you'd want to monitor the baby for signs of insatiety. But a single dose is unlikely inter to interfere with breastfeeding if you had a patient who, for example, was experiencing bladder spasms from their indwelling Foley catheter. Beta-3 agonists, there's really no data on risk of inf infant harm or impact on milk supply with use during breastfeeding. However, I wouldn't recommend it because of the possible excretion into milk based on the drug properties itself. So I'd avoid these in breastfeeding mothers. Onobotulinum toxin, which we inject into the detrusor muscle of the bladder, is an effective treatment for overactive bladder and urgency incontinence. However, the use of this um, in pregnancy or while lactating is contraindicated. Another, what we consider the third line therapies, um, is called sacroneuromodulation. And basically this is a two-part procedure where we drop a lead through the S3 foramen of the sacrum. And the um, stimulator affects afferent and efferent signals between the brain and the bladder. And so what do we know about this in this unique patient population? Well, if a patient already has one present, it's recommended that it's turned off during pregnancy. And for women who have overactive bladder or urgency incontinence, I really wouldn't recommend pursuing this as an option until at least six months postpartum. Now let's discuss bowel control issues. The second case is a 35-year-old P1 who presented at three weeks postpartum after a forceps-assisted vaginal delivery with a fourth-degree laceration for evaluation of anal incontinence and fecal urgency. She started having fecal urgency immediately postpartum. 
She experienced fecal incontinence on two different occasions when her stool was loose from the medications she was prescribed at discharge. And this was really upsetting to her because she didn't even know that this was a possibility after she had her baby. She reported some pain from her laceration, which was primarily managed with ibuprofen, and she also noticed some continued spotting. On her vaginal exam, she had a wound separation and she had a very short perineal body. So the perineal body is the distance from the back wall of the vagina to the medianal opening. And two and a half centimeters is kind of the threshold where we would denote that the perineal body is shortened. And hers was a centimeter and a half. On exam, she wasn't able to perform a levator squeeze at all. I did a digital rectal exam and she had normal resting tone at the lateral and posterior portions of the sphincter. But there wasn't a significant increase in tone with squeeze anteriorly, so I suspected that she may have a sphincter defect from about 10 to 2 o'clock. I did a transperineal 3D ultrasound, which you can see here, and on this ultrasound, the mid to distal internal anal sphincter defect um, was noted from 11 to 1 o'clock, um, and the external anal sphincter defect is noted from 10 to 2 o'clock. And you can see that that's kind of that black wedge at the top of the um, image. And there it is denoted with the arrows. So I, I discussed increasing dietary fiber with her with the option of adding lopiramide to bulk her stools. We know that it is much more um, difficult to hold in liquid stool than solid stool. So affecting stool consistency is a really important strategy in this patient population. We talked about starting with pelvic floor physical therapy given her lack of muscle control on exam. We know the puborectalis acts as a sling around the anorectum, as I mentioned earlier, and um, increasing your ability to coordinate that muscle can help with continence. And then we discussed other lifestyle modifications, but also discussed a secondary anal sphincteroplasty given the ultrasonographic and physical exam findings. So let's first talk, talk about fecal urgency. In a multi-center prospective cohort study, at six weeks postpartum, fecal urgency was reported in nearly 40% of women with an obstetric anal sphincter injury and 28% of women with lower degree lacerations. A Canadian prospective cohort study reported fecal urgency in 6 to 28% after OAC during a follow-up period out to 30 months. And fecal urgency may be as important as stool consistency for fecal incontinence because if you can't get to the restroom quickly enough, it is certainly possible that you will leak. Anal incontinence, so we know the frequency of anal incontinence after a WACI repair ranges from 15 to 61%. Women with a have greater fecal incontinence, flatal incontinence, and fecal incontinence severity at six weeks and six months postpartum than women with lesser tears. And we know that women who have fourth degree lacerations, which are those tears that extend all the way into the rectum, report 10 times worse bowel control than those who have third degree lacerations. Anal incontinence is associated with significantly poorer quality of life, not surprisingly. The overall prognosis, however, is good with 60 to 80% of women reporting no symptoms of anal incontinence or significant discomfort at 12 months. However, we know that women with a history of OACI reported increased anal incontinence five to 10 years after their first delivery. And so it's almost as though women 
experience some bowel control deterioration postpartum. It recovers. They have a honeymoon period where they maintain their stool continence, and then as they age, they start having deterioration of symptoms again. For women with one or more vaginal delivery, the 15-year cumulative incidence of anal incontinence was 30.6%. An operative vaginal delivery, as I alluded to earlier with that Dr. DeLee quote, was associated with a significantly higher hazard of anal incontinence compared to uninstrumented vaginal delivery and cesarean section. So how can we manage these patients? Well, the first thing that's key is supportive and lifestyle measures. Discuss ritualizing bowel habits with patients. If they can, you know, wake up in the morning, um, eat something with fiber, maybe to have a bowel stimulant like caffeine, use the bathroom, evacuate their bowels completely, then they can minimize the risk of having an accident later in the day. There are stool deodorants that can be purchased um, online. And, you know, avoiding increases in colonic motility, especially when a bathroom isn't close, which is things like caffeine, brisk activity after meals, and insoluble fiber. For medical treatment options, affecting stool consistency, as I mentioned, is key because more solid stool um, gives the patient greater opportunity to hold the stool in than when stool is liquid. And so you can discuss soluble fiber to your patients, lopiramide, which is a constipating agent, and is also safe for use in breastfeeding women. And then if they have any other medical conditions um, or are taking other medications that predispose them to loose stool, focusing on treating those at the same time can be helpful too. The data on pelvic floor PT is a little bit mixed. Um, a randomized control trial of uh, standard postpartum care to 12 weeks of pelvic floor physical therapy in women with an obstetric anal sphincter injury showed that pelvic floor PT resulted in significant reduction in symptoms versus women who were basically given an educational pamphlet. A Cochrane review demonstrated unclear benefit, but trials were small to moderate and there was lots of heterogeneity and no long-term data. And an RCT of pelvic floor PT versus biofeedback, um, excuse me, pelvic floor PT with biofeedback versus standard of care in OASI found um, significant improvement from baseline to 12 weeks, but there were no differences in the groups. And, you know, despite the kind of the mixture of data here, I still think it is a great place to start for women, um, especially who have difficulty coordinating their pelvic floor muscles on exam and maybe who have you know, failed some of the behavioral modifications and medication options that I mentioned. Secondary sphincteroplasty, unfortunately the data is a little bit lacking. In research studies, the initial success after performing a secondary anal sphincteroplasty is 60 to 80%, but there's poor long-term success, which some studies have um, put at low, as low as 6% at 10 years. But there are a couple problems here. The definition of success in these studies varies wildly. And um, there are limited, well-designed studies who have heterogeneity in their patient populations. So for example, you know, I think the best patient population to do a secondary sphincteroplasty in is someone who is early postpartum. And some of these patients in these studies are older women many years out from their initial vaginal delivery with their laceration. So I still think there is a role for a secondary sphincteroplasty in a postpartum population. 
There's a device called e-stim electrical stimulation um, that's a wand that can be placed in the vagina, and this would be great for an at-home treatment for a busy new postpartum mother. But unfortunately, a study out of Northwestern found that at 13 weeks, it was actually associated with more anal incontinence symptoms than sham, and so therefore this is not a recommended treatment for this patient population. Sacral neuromodulation, as I mentioned before, um, is also FDA approved for fecal incontinence. And so um, a randomized control trial of sacral neuromodulation versus injection of collagen at the anal sphincter complex for fecal incontinence showed superior efficacy in women with a remote history of OASI. And 75% of women with a history of OASI had a successful outcome with sacral neuromodulation for combined fecal and urgency incontinence. And in these studies, we found that women do not need to have an intact sphincter complex in order to be eligible for sacral neuromodulation and to have a successful outcome. And it, um, another study showed that it's successful for most patients who fail conservative therapy and that more than 80% of women had a greater than 50% reduction in fecal incontinence episodes up to 14 years postoperatively in the general population of women getting sacral neuromodulation, not a specific postpartum population. So let's go back to my patient. She returned three weeks later. Her perineum and pain were somewhat improved, but as you can see in this diagram, she has a very short perineal body um, that is definitely separated, and her bowel symptoms were still pre present. So we talked a lot about it, and the decision was made to proceed with surgical management. At 12 weeks postpartum, she underwent a transvaginal anal sphincteroplasty and posterior colporophy and perineorophy. So basically, um, we repaired her anal sphincter defect, and then she had a little weakness from her delivery along the back wall of the vagina, so we fixed that with a posterior colporphy, and then I rebuilt the perineum. And what you can see in the lower portion of this figure is she has nice anal rugations along the anal opening, and compared to the last image, you can see her perineal body is a much more anatomic length. She returned the office at six weeks postoperatively and reported excellent bowel control and was well healed on exam. So now let's go on to pelvic organ prolapse. Our last patient is a 29-year-old G1P1 who presented at six months after an uncomplicated vaginal delivery over an intact perineum for evaluation of defecatory dysfunction and a vaginal bulge. This started after her delivery. She endorses splinting, which is the process of either inserting a finger vaginally or supporting the perineum during defecation to help evacuate stool. And she reports a sensation that stool is getting trapped in a pocket. She will sometimes have to digitize to empty, and she denies constipation. She saw her OBGYN, who referred her to pelvic floor PT, and completed a course, which she said really did not help her defecatory dysfunction. On vaginal exam, she had a posterior vaginal wall prolapse that came to the vaginal opening, and this was stage two out of four. And stage two is really the point when patients start to become symptomatic because the prolapse comes about to the level of the hymen. On a digital rectal exam, she had a rectocele pocket um, and she had a mild perineal body separation. So some weakness of this last line of defense and support um, of the pelvic floor. 
And at this point, she desired surgical management of her prolapse given her significant defecatory dysfunction. So she underwent an uncomplicated posterior repair and perineurophy. And at six weeks post-op, she came back and reported complete resolution of all of her defecatory dysfunction. So pelvic organ prolapse, it's really difficult to tease out the individual contributions of a vaginal birth, operative vaginal delivery, episiotomy, and OACI on future pelvic floor function. We know that pelvic organ support defects can appear during pregnancy and before delivery. And there have been studies that have examined pregnant women during their pregnancy at different intervals in the first trimester and the third trimester, and there is certainly a progression of weakening of the pelvic supports from those factors that we talked about earlier. With a vaginal delivery, we earlier discussed the significant stretching of the levator ani muscles that can lead to both muscle damage and nerve stretch injury and direct damage from tearing. We know that increasing parity and to a lesser extent, larger babies are associated with an increased risk for future pelvic organ prolapse and undergoing surgery for pelvic organ prolapse. In one study, multiple vaginal deliveries with perineal laceration were associated with pelvic organ prolapse beyond the hymen. And interestingly, in um, some of these studies, we see that the risk of prolapse subsequently increases from zero to one to two vaginal births, but then each subsequent vaginal birth actually has a much less contribution to the risk of prolapse. So the angle of increase of risk with your third or fourth baby is much smaller. At seven and a half years from a vaginal birth, 13% of women had prolapse on exam in one study, but only 3% of these patients were symptomatic. Women with a vaginal delivery had a 15-year cumulative pelvic organ prolapse incidence of about 30%. We know in studies um, out of Johns Hopkins by um, Blomquist and Handa, have shown that operative vaginal delivery was associated with a higher hazard than just a spontaneous vaginal delivery alone. Increasing the vaginal opening size, which we call the genital hiatus, and this is a measurement from the mid-urethral opening to the back wall of the vagina. As it gets larger, um, greater than three and a half centimeters, um, we saw that there was a significantly elevated hazard ratio for prolapse. And again, this is because the vaginal opening is a representation of kind of the third level of support, which is the most distal support to the pelvic organs. So what management options are there for pelvic organ prolapse? Well, you can start with just expectant management. You know, some of these patients are just so appreciative to know what's going on with their body and being reassured. I do so many educational exams in the office um, where I have a patient hold a hand mirror and I you know, start by just going over basic vulvar anatomy. Many women haven't ever looked at their anatomy um, and it's really helpful as a discussion point of helping them understand what's going on with their body. And you know, reassuring them that prolapse is a quality of life condition, it's not you know, going to shorten your life or increase your risk of cancer, it's just a nuisance, it's a quality of life issue. And many women just feel reassured to know that because you know, they get terrified when they're examining themselves or they're in the shower cleaning up and they feel something there. There's good studies to support that pelvic floor physical therapy can um, improve um, symptomatic prolapse, so the bothersome bulge sensation that women experience, and it actually improves sexual satisfaction. 
pessaries are also devices that um, can be fit and be used for a primary indication of prolapse. And if the patient isn't experiencing incontinence, we can use one that doesn't have one of those knobs. But again, we fit that pessary to the patient. And then we teach them how to remove and replace it themselves. And then there are surgical management options for those with persistent symptoms who are having a significant impact on their quality of life. And so if a patient elects for surgical management, um, depending on what type of prolapse is involved, she can potentially have a uterine sparing prolapse repair, and this can be done with or without mesh augmentation. And I tell my patients that they may have an increased risk of prolapse recurrence with a subsequent pregnancy and delivery, but if they are having significant bother from their prolapse, I would not um, force them to uh, just you know, deal with it until they're done with childbearing. So what are the key takeaways today? Pregnancy and vaginal delivery are contributors to pelvic floor disorders. Postpartum pelvic floor disorders are common. And while for many symptoms um, that women will initially experience may resolve, for some these symptoms persist when they're still present at three to six months postpartum, which is helpful for when you're you know, expectantly, or excuse me, you're providing anticipatory guidance in the office. There are many conservative treatment options that can be offered to postpartum patients and that you can offer when you see them, including behavioral modifications, pelvic floor physical therapy, pessaries or vaginal inserts, and medications, which really should be reserved for women who are not breastfeeding. Pelvic floor physical therapists, obstetric providers, and urogynecologists can be great resources for patients who are experiencing pelvic floor disorders. And as I mentioned, patients do not need to complete childbearing to be eligible for surgical treatments, but they do need to have significant bother and a significant impact on their quality of life. So in conclusion, many patients do not know they have a pelvic floor, let alone what a pelvic floor disorder is. And for many, pregnancy is the first time they will experience these things. Screening for pelvic floor disorders is an important component of postpartum care, as many patients won't volunteer if they're not asked. And educating patients that this isn't their new normal and that there are treatments and providers um, that are available to help them is key. What does pelvic physical therapy or pelvic floor physical therapy involve and what should women expect on the physical therapy visits? So pelvic floor physical therapy will be a one-on-one -on -one visit with a female physical therapist in a private exam room. And at the initial visit, they do a major assessment of things like your core strength, your back strength, hip alignment. It's so much more than just teaching the patient how to Kegel. But patients will typically go to a series of appointments and work with their physical therapist. They'll also have home exercises to work on in between appointments. And there is some, you know, intravaginal uh, manipulation that will be done, but not all of it is intravaginal. Well, you mentioned how common pelvic floor dysfunction is in women. Is there anything a woman can do prior to pregnancy or delivery to prevent uh, postpartum pelvic floor dysfunction? That's a great question. So I think, you know, strengthening the pelvic floor muscles are a key aspect of um, preventing pelvic floor disorders. Um, in pregnancy, women can be doing Kegel exercises. They're completely safe to do. I typically recommend sets of 10, two to three times a day when you're brushing your teeth in the morning can be a good reminder and also before bed. And the goal is to work up the duration of the muscle contraction. So you wanna squeeze and hold those muscles for up to 10 seconds at a time. 
let the muscles completely relax and do sets of 10. And 10 seconds is actually a really long time to contract the pelvic floor muscles because unlike a muscle like your biceps, as you're contracting, it will just fatigue and let go. So, you know, patients shouldn't be discouraged if in the beginning they can't hold for 10 seconds. I also tell patients they can start by doing what we call zero gravity kegels, where they do them laying down because you don't have the weight of the upper body on the pelvic floor, but they can increase um, the difficulty level by then moving from laying to sitting, and then the most difficult would be standing. Um, and, you know, I think there are some other um, treatments that have been suggested during delivery to help prevent advanced lacerations. Um, you know, they have modest effects, but there are things like uh, warm compresses to the perineum during labor or pushing on one side. Another option is um, doing self-perineal massage regularly starting at 34 weeks. And these things, you know, are supposed to decrease a little bit the risk of having an advanced tear, which as you saw today in the presentation, are risk factors for all kinds of pelvic floor disorders. If a woman has a pelvic floor dysfunction after a first pregnancy, is it safe to have a second pregnancy? Absolutely. You know, these are quality of life issues. So, um, you know, women can safely carry a pregnancy. There will be no um, risk of danger to the baby during pregnancy. And I actually take care of a number of pregnant women who are having symptomatic prolapse or incontinence, and we get them um, hooked up with strategies like going to physical therapy during pregnancy, which is safe, or wearing a pessary during pregnancy, which is also safe and can provide some symptomatic relief of these issues that they're having. Well, you have a specialized clinic for women with postpartum pelvic floor dysfunction. When should the general obstetrician or family physician refer a woman for specialized care? Great question. So, you know, I think if you are comfortable, if the provider is comfortable starting with some of the strategies that I recommended, they can carry it on for as long as the patient is getting benefit. But if at any point the, you know, patient is seeing some limited return or is having worsening symptoms, we are completely happy to get these patients in earlier. And if you aren't comfortable caring for women with pelvic floor disorders, just, um, recognizing them and getting them hooked up with appropriate care is really key. For physicians or hospitals that are considering starting a subspecialty peripartum uh, pelvic floor disorder clinic, what advice do you have and what should they expect in the first one or two or three years? So that's a great question. I um, actually published a paper in the American Journal of OBGYN that you can, that providers can access online um, that goes over how to start a peripartum clinic. We really wanted to have this roadmap so that other you know, institutions could um, recreate what I did and my co-authors from um, the University of Michigan and Northwestern University. And, um, you know, what I would say to providers is that if you want to start a service line like this, it's great. Um, you have to do a lot of PR work to get the word out about what you're doing and the type of patients you want to see. But what I saw in my experience at Cleveland Clinic was that the referral base gradually built um, up and that from year one to year three, there was a steady increase in the number of patients that I saw. And I would say nearly two thirds of those patients were women who had advanced lacerations and pelvic floor symptoms associated with it. But then that means the other proportion of women were pregnant patients, women with other peripartum pelvic floor disorders, um, you know, urinary retention issues, postpartum, pain with intercourse, things like that. How frequently do women uh, who get referred to your clinic ultimately require surgery? 
Good question. So um, in my uh, experience um, from Cleveland Clinic, it was about 6% of women who needed a surgical intervention, whether that was for a wound breakdown that we had to rebuild the perineum to address the anatomic defect, anal sphincteroplasties, um, non-healing episiotomies, rectovaginal fistulas, vesco-vaginal fistulas, things like that. One last question. It wasn't that long ago that surgical treatment of pelvic organ prolapse meant hysterectomy. You mentioned uterine sparing prolapse repair. How effective are these procedures, and is there a best approach, either transvaginally or transabdominally? So uh, I actually love this question because you're right. Prolapse used to equal hysterectomy. But in my opinion, the uterus is an innocent bystander in prolapse. It's really the support structures that are supposed to hold the pelvic organs in place that have failed patients. And so, you know, it's a safe option to do a uterine sparing prolapse repair. Um, I personally prefer to approach them vaginally, um, and I will resupport the uterus using either the uterosacral or the sacrospinous ligaments. Um, there are techniques to go um, abdominally and perform these surgeries. There's a sacromesh hysteropexy where we use a lightweight piece of mesh to pull um, up the uterus to the um, anterior longitudinal ligament of the sacrum. Um, there's also laparoscopic techniques that employ reattaching the uterosacral ligaments to the cervix. But we really kind of extrapolate the hysteropaxy data out to the um, data for women who have an apical support procedure, either after a hysterectomy or at the time of a hysterectomy. And some of the uh, five-year data in our field suggests that um, at five years out from a native tissue repair, approximately one in 10 women will have gone on to have a second surgery or a pessary placed for symptomatic prolapse. So we kind of um, have seen parallels in our hysteropexy studies with similar outcomes. Well, thanks, Lisa. We're gonna finish up with a final key point about postpartum pelvic floor dysfunction. Lisa? Thanks, Jim. So, you know, my key takeaway for you is think about the three Bs, asking your patients postpartum about bowel, bladder, and bulge symptoms. And if they report yes to any of those, knowing that providers like me, obstetricians, and physical therapy colleagues are available to help these patients. Well, Lisa, thanks again for joining us today. For all of you viewing, don't forget that you can get American Board of Internal Medicine maintenance of certification points for viewing MedNet and then answering the post-test questions following the webcast. And joining me next week will be oncology plastic surgeon, Dr. Roman Skoraki to discuss the management of lymphedema. We'll see you then.